Awesome. Well, uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of First John. It's in. It's kind of towards the back of the New Testament. Um, as a matter of fact, if you go to the very end of your Bible, which is Revelation, and then keep going to the left, you'll see Revelation, Jude, Third, Second, First John. So we're in First John this morning. If you don't own a Bible, uh, there are some on the back table. If you just didn't bring it with you, we've got the text that we're going to be looking at in your order of worship. Um, and so just have it in front of you. It's going to be helpful. Well, Happy New Year again. Uh, so there are, there are um, I'm sure you know this, it, it kind of goes without saying, but there are kind of two times in the year in which our culture um, kind of has these major transition points where people generally are open to new things, right? One of them is uh, the week after Labor Day. It's, you know, Labor Day for some reason, because the end of summer, right? End of summer, we do things. And then in the New Year's, right? New Year's is the time where we make promises to ourselves that we're going to break in like a few minutes. Uh, or we, we just, we're going to start doing something new. Um, we're open to new things. And so that means that if you're a member of regular tenor of Holy Cross, uh, this is the perfect time for you to begin thinking and praying about uh, friends, neighbors that you have, maybe coworkers, folks that you'd love to see worshiping next to you. Because this is the time of year when folks, even if they, especially if they've not been to church, they kind of went, did the church thing for a while and have been gone for a while. And, uh, but this is a time of year in which people are more open to coming into things like that. Uh, so keep that in mind, especially as we come closer to uh, Friendship Sunday on the 22nd. Uh, what we're doing as a way to kind of transition into new things is starting a new sermon series. I mentioned that earlier, but we're going to be uh, doing the series through John that will last from now until um, the end of May. Me going uh, kind of uh, verse by verse through this. So, in, in case you're not aware of this, there are multiple ways that you can preach. And if you've been to a bunch of different churches, maybe you've been, maybe maybe this is your first time in church. But uh, if you haven't, maybe you've been to a bunch of different churches. You know, the people do this in different ways. So, there's topical preaching. That's where you decide on a set of topics you want to preach on. Like, I want to preach a eight week series on relationships, right? And so, and you kind of pick Bible passages or maybe multiple ones that speak to those things. That's called topical. Then there's a kind of textual where you're, you're, you're taking up one particular passage and then you're kind of um, preaching ideas that are found in it, but not necessarily teaching what the passage as a whole is saying. And then there's what's called um, expository preaching, expositional, sometimes called exegetical. Uh, that's where you take a book of the Bible and you kind of go through it in a more systematic way. Right? That's what we're about to do. We've done topical. We did that over the summer. Um, or, sorry, in the, in the fall we were doing that. And now we're going to be doing in a more expository way. All of these different ways of preaching are valid. And there's not, we, like, we tend to lean more towards doing exposition, going through an entire book, because we believe that we need to hear all of the Bible. And, and now, some of you are doing the math. You're like, Rick, if you did, you can't possibly do all of the Bible doing it that way. You're right. But what it does mean is that we can't avoid passages that we would really rather avoid. If you're preaching through a book, it's going to say some things that you'd really rather not say. God's Word does that. If God's Word isn't challenging us and and pushing on us and and reshaping us, disrupting us, and enticing us, we're probably not reading it rightly. Because that's what it does. This morning, uh, we are going to begin in 1 John to lay a foundation, not just for the book itself, but for the Christian life. So if you have your place in 1 John, our, our um, tradition here is to stand as the, the scriptures read before the sermon. We're going to be just reading the first four verses of chapter 1. Okay? John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have 
seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, testify to it, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's a new year. And that brings with it, although it's really just kind of arbitrary, this turning of a calendar. At the same time, for all of us, we, we are, some of us are really happy to put away 2016. Uh, that it bore with it a lot of pain and a lot of grief. And we're, we're just, we're happy to be done with it. Um, others of us are, uh, it's kind of sad to see it go. It's been a great year and, and we're maybe a little nervous about what's coming in the next year. Uh, because every time we turn the calendar, we are reminded that we are uh, powerless creatures. And that things happen uh, that we can't control. We hate that, but we still have to look at that. Lord, so we need to hear words of comfort from you. We need to hear your gospel to us to help us as we think about this next year. And as we, as we begin to lean into it, we pray that you would, you would come during this time and speak your word to us. Open our eyes and our ears so that as John has said, that what was heard and seen and touched, Lord, that we might even experience you in that way this morning. Pray that you would do this for your glory's sake and for our good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's see. So growing up, I was, um, uh, there's no other way to say this. I'm a geek. There's really no other, I'm a geek. And so growing up, I was really into uh, Greek and Roman mythology. I don't know why. I think it's the stories. I'm also into superheroes. They're all about the same. Mythology was basically like ancient comic books. Okay, so anyway, um, so in, uh, in Homer's epic, The Odyssey, and that, that should, all I have to do is mention that, that tells you the limits of my geekdom, like I've actually read The Odyssey, right? So in, in Homer's epic, The Odyssey, there's this great story about Odysseus on his way back to Ithaca, who um, is coming, uh, sailing on a ship with his crew, and they come near the island of the Sirens, okay? You ever heard the, the phrase, the Sirens song? This is where that comes from, and it, it goes like this, right? The sirens are these magical creatures, these, um, these creatures that look like women. Uh, I won't get into their backstory. Um, so they, they look like women. They have this song that is very alluring that entraps anyone who comes near their island, and, and, draw, and uncontrollably you are drawn to their island. Now the problem is, of course, they're going to eat you when you get there, but you don't know that because everything sounds really beautiful. And so Odysseus comes up with this great plan. He had been tipped off that this was coming, and so he comes up with this great plan. He tells all of his crew members, um, all of his crew, because um, see, the problem is, well, we'll get to that. He tells all of his crew members to take wax, like real wax, not what's already in yours, but real wax, and plug your ears up with it so they can't hear a thing. Now, of course, the problem with that is that if everyone did that, you wouldn't know when you were safe, right? So, they have, so Odysseus has another plan. He won't have his ears plugged up, but because of the fact that it, this is going to be Awful for him. He says, what you need to do is you need to lash me, tie me to the mast. Right? To lash, they want to lash him to the mast. And, and so the, the wax is twofold. They won't hear the siren song and they won't hear him screaming for them to let him go so that he can get to the, to the sirens. And of course, uh, 
And, and, of, and of course, this, is, this story has produced this phrase, to, to lash yourself, to tie yourself to the mast. And, and that is given as a, a phrase to kind of anchor yourself to something stronger than you. To kind of hold, your, hold you to something that is bigger than you are. And that is what this book of 1 John is really about. Especially this first section. It's about John, who's, who we're going to learn about in a second, who is basically encouraging those around him to, to um, instead of running after the new and the different, to lash themselves to the mast of the gospel and to the truths of it. Reminding us that our beliefs are not ideas, but, of, but events and a person. And to strap ourselves to that. So we're going to look at this in two ways this morning. There's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. We're going to look at um, foundational a foundational message, and then we're going to look at foundational points, okay? A foundational message and foundational points. You ready? Good. All right, let's go. No one said anything, so I'm assuming that means yes. All right, let's begin by giving a little background, okay? So this letter was written by the Apostle John. You'd love John. Uh, John was one of Jesus' first disciples, one of his first followers. Um, He was the youngest of the disciples, the youngest of the Apostles. He was a kid uh, during the time that Jesus was walking around on the earth, Um, he wrote a bunch of the New Testament. He wrote one of the Gospels. All right, Brandon read from that this morning. Okay, the Gospel of John is, was written by him. He wrote uh, three letters, although two of them are so short, you almost want to combine them, but he wrote three letters, uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. I know that's really hard to remember. What books did John write? Well, there's four of them that are by his name. And then the last one, the book of Revelation. You're like, whoa. Yeah, so he, he, he can go a little kooky. He's got some, he's got some interesting uh, imagination stuff going on. Uh, but this is what he did. Now, if you're new to the Bible, Jesus had 12 disciples that he spent the bulk of his three years of public ministry with. 12 dudes that he hung out with. There were other people. There, was a, there were um, other men and women who went and followed around him. But these 12 were like his core. The core guys that he was going to uh, pour his life into... And the strategy was basically this. He would pour his life into them, and then after he was gone, because that wasn't a surprise to him, they would go out throughout the world and pour their lives into others who would then pour their lives into others. Right? It's a great plan. So he had these 12 guys, but even within the 12, there were three guys that he hung out with the most. Peter, James, and John. They were like his, his best friends, I guess. Now, I know that strikes some of us funny, so we don't like to think about Jesus playing favorites. But listen, Jesus was a person who had affinities. It should not surprise us that he had affinities for some more than others. It, I know that's hard for us because we think everyone should be treated exactly the same. Jesus didn't seem to have that um, value in the same way that we do. So John's main area of ministry, the main place that he, he lived and worked and, and kind of ministered the gospel to after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven was, was um, this place called Asia Minor, which now is in a part of the world we call Turkey, and specifically a city called Ephesus. Now, he didn't start the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul did, but he ended up there, spent the majority of his life there before he had been uh, before he was exiled by the Romans to an island called Patmos, which is where he was at when he wrote Revelation. Okay, we all up to date on John? That, that's that's kind of John. So what he's doing in this letter is he's writing this letter to confront some problems that had come to the church, that had come into the church in Ephesus then, and still do, because you see, we're a people. I don't think any of us are avoid of this. We are a people who are enamored with the new, and the different, right? 
pop culture is such that, like, um, if, if you have a favorite music artist, if they don't put out music, like, every three months, you forget about them and move on. It's just kind of the way things work. And, and so we are a people who are enamored with the new, and ancient people were no different. We are also a people who struggle with the basic Christian message called the gospel. And ancient people were no different. Because, you see, the Bible seems to have no problem holding in tension some things that we really struggle holding in tension. Right? Uh, take, for instance, the, the idea the Bible teaches that uh, humanity is created with great dignity in the image of God. But we're also fallen. And sin touches every aspect of our being. How do we hold those two in tension? Uh, the idea that God is fully sovereign over all of his creation, over all of history, and yet we're personally responsible. How do, how do we hold those in tension? Uh, uh, Jesus was... Um, Fully God and also fully man. God is both merciful and just. And see, because we have a hard time holding those things in tension, we tend to run to one side or the other, right? We run to one pole or the other because we want to kind of uh, we, we, we reduce the complexity. That, that one of Jesus being fully God and fully man, though, you see, that one was particularly troubling for ancient people. And especially Greek and culturally Greek and Roman people because of their ideas of what God must be like. If God must be like this, unchangeable, uh, not affected by anything, um, without any emotions or passions, the idea of him like becoming human seems below and beneath him. And so uh, some teachers had come into the churches John pastored, and they were teaching that you and I, humanity, we're basically spirit in a shell. Maybe you've heard this before, because this isn't like, this never went out of favor. That we're basically spirits in a shell, that, that, that luminous beings are we, you know, not this crude matter, to quote the sage Yoda. Um, and, and, that, and, and, and so what that meant was, because the body doesn't really matter, what we do in the body doesn't really matter. Which means whatever we do with our bodies, uh, ethically, doesn't matter. In fact, they, would, they were teaching they were beyond the ant, these antiquated moralities right and wrong in the Bible. They had been raised to a higher knowledge than those traditionalists. Sound familiar? Because that didn't go away either. And so John is writing to throw down the gauntlet as one who witnessed what actually happened. Okay? So that brings us to witnessed realities. Look down at verses 1 and 2. He writes, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, looked upon, touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Okay, now stop there. I want to draw out a couple things here. But... First, if you're a grammar nut and you know who you are, I know this is a bad sentence, okay? I know this is a bad sentence. I know there's some folks in this church, this congregation, have a hard time reading the Bible because it's like, it's bad English. I want you, I want to, a couple things on this. One, it's, it's a translation. The Bible was not written in English, right? Originally it was written, this letter was written in Greek. So translating something makes it a little bulky. Second thing, in, in Greek, word order is malleable. Right? We have particular word order in our language, subject, verb, object. Right? That's the way we do sentences. Uh, in Greek, you could mix all those up because you told what those were by the endings that were on the words. And in fact, you would bring certain things to the front of your sentences if they were important. And so that's what's going on here. John's moving certain things to the front of the sentence, which makes it really bad English, so that we understand this is really important. Okay? So the first thing that John is doing, um, and, and what, what he's doing is he's grounding what he's going to say here and throughout his letter in what happened. Okay? He says, 
when he says that which was from the beginning, the word is very, the, that phrase is very similar to what Brandon read a few minutes ago from John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. It's a very similar phraseology. He's using the same kind of ideas. But more, like, more than likely, he doesn't mean the beginning of all things like he did there. He means the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That which was from the beginning. And he can say that because he was there. He was an eyewitness to what happened. John was one of literally the first disciples of Jesus. Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. um, and, And John the Baptist had these people following him. And one of them was John. And so John the Baptist saw Jesus like, Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. John's like, what? Hold on, that dude? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, check you later. I'm going to go hang out with him. So he, he goes and he hangs out with Jesus. He was there from the beginning. Second, we have all of this. Uh, so th- that's the first thing. that When we're talking about the beginning, we're talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And John was there. Second thing is this. You, you see all this like sensual language. And by sensual, I don't mean sexual. I mean senses, right? Uh, things you see, things you've heard, things you've touched, all, all of that stuff. Here's what's cool about this. He's not talking about a message. I mean, think about that. You can hear a message, right? Can you touch it? No, of course not. Can you see it? No. Of course, it's a message. Like, it's, it, that which he heard, that which he saw and touched, was not a message. It was a person. He's talking about a person. When he says the word of life, he's not talking about a teaching. He's talking about the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. And then he writes, that life was made manifest. In other words, um, we could see it. It it was revealed to us. The same thing, it says that the word became flesh. So this is the life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it. Proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Okay, There's tons here, but here's what we need to remember. We need to remember what John is trying to do here. The false teachers that had come in, at least as well as the scholars can kind of put together what's going on, they had come in claiming that Christianity is about teaching. It's about a certain set of propositions to believe. And so because Christianity is about teaching, then they could claim they had a higher level of teaching or knowledge. The Greek word for that is gnosis. They had a higher level of gnosis than the apostles. And so if you're going to do this, you need to either claim one of two things. Either Jesus was a normal dude. He was a normal dude who had access to some of the knowledge that you have, but now you have a little bit more, right? Or you say that the apostles were mistaken and that Jesus was never human in the first place. And now you have more of the information that he would have given to them, but they got so off track. And this all creation stuff. What John is saying is both that Jesus is from the Father. Right? Did you see that? The life, the eternal life that was with the Father, the the language there, again, is the same as in John's Gospel, in the prologue, that he was with the Father. In in, in the the particular wording there gives the sense of um, towards. He He was in intimate relationship with the Father. So he's saying that Jesus is both from the Father in relationship with the Father, and he was made manifest, and he came in the flesh. So these teachers are trying to create a new vision of Christianity, trying to create a new kind of Christian. 
based on their enlightened knowledge. And John is coming back to the roots. Not to a message, but to a person. He saw the life. He saw what Jesus did, and that is what he proclaimed to them. Okay? This is important. So if if you checked out, check back in real quick. John is saying that his understanding of Christianity, and in fact, all of the understandings of Christianity, if it's valid, is grounded in witness. And I mean that in its fully legal sense. Witness. He saw something happen. And that is what he passed on. And if that is the case, if it's something that he saw, that he was an eyewitness to and he passed on, then it's unchangeable. It cannot be altered. Because you can't alter what happened. You can't change what happened And you can't change your testimony about what happened without perjuring yourself. makes you a false witness. John is saying, What I saw and heard and touched is the one who came from the Father, and this is what I proclaim to you. Okay. Now let's look at the results. Look down at verses 3 and 4. He says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, let's stop there. Let's be honest. The only people who use the word fellowship are churchy people. And even then, it's one of those buzzwords that we use. We use these buzzwords like um, traveling mercies, right? Or, um, or, or, or wrestling with something. Or um, seeing fruit. Uh, or, or one of my favorite is the phrase, how's your heart? Right? That's Christianese. That's language we use. But here's the reality. With all those buzzwords, we don't have a clue what they mean. We just heard other people say them, and so we use them too. And it's like, say we're part of the group. We're all part of the group. How's your heart? Good. Uh, 76 beats a minute. I'm doing great. I don't know what that means. So anyway, here's, here's, here's the reality. That means that more than likely, no one here, whether you're a church person or not, really has any understanding of what that word fellowship means. Okay, but here's what it means. Let me let me let me help us. That word fellowship does not mean hanging out. Okay, fellowship does not mean hanging out, and it's not something you go to to drink coffee. Right? That's not the fellowship hour, that kind of thing. No, no. Fellowship, this particular word, means a participation. It means participation, a union. And in this context, it means an intimacy with God and with each other. Now, some of you are confused by that, right? Because We've come to believe that Christianity ultimately is about getting saved, which we're not really sure what that means either, but we know it has something to do with going to heaven when we die. But here, what is spoken of isn't exactly salvation. It's participation. It's fellowship. It's relationship. It's relationship. Here's why. The Bible presents all of creation, all of our life and all of the life of creation, relationally. Relationally, involved in relationships, right? Which shouldn't surprise us because the Christian vision of God is that God is one God in three persons eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not one God in three forms or three gods. There's a unity of God, in God. There's one God in three persons, a plurality, which means that they are the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity in relationship, loving relationship with each other. Which, as an aside, this is why in Christianity you can say that God is love and you can't say it in any other vision of God. 
Like, what are you talking about? Because God is love because he doesn't need creation to be loving. He's already loving. If you have an isolated monad, like Allah, you can't have love as an essential quality. He's never had to love anything eternally. That's why, that, frankly, that's why the chief uh, value in, in that religion is submission, which is what Islam means, Right? Anyway, that's an aside. So uh, all, of, all of creation is relationship. And if we are created in God's image, then we can expect that we are created in that same way, right? So we're created to be in relationship with God. The Bible calls that relationship a dependent relationship. We're meant to depend on him for our life, for our value, for our understanding of reality, for everything. But in time, we came to believe a lie. God doesn't love you. He's not out for you good. He's trying to hold you back. Again, sound familiar? We still think that. We came to believe this lie, and so we betrayed him. We turned away from him. We broke relationship with God. That's what the Bible calls sin. It's not breaking a rule. It's breaking a relationship. We turned away from God. We were made to be dependent. We wanted to be independent of him. And then sin messed us up. We're guilty for betraying God because all betrayals bring guilt. You know that. But then we also became broken. Whereas we had to be convinced of the lie before, now it's our presupposition. We, under, we don't have to be taught those, that lie. We just believe it. Okay? We exist, the Bible would say, in a state called sin. We can't save ourselves. By our nature, we are independent of God. See, this is what drives a lot of folks crazy about Christianity. Because Christianity isn't ultimately about being good. God isn't looking for good. He's looking for dependent. Does that have ethical ramifications? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's about dependence. And so because we're stuck in our independence, God came in Jesus to rescue us. And he lived perfectly dependent on God, loving him and others. And then he died to bear our guilt for betraying God. Okay. So when we place our faith in Jesus as our rescuer, we are reconciled with God. Our relationship with God is Healed. It is brought back to what it was supposed to be. You see how this works? We are brought, when we, when we trust in Christ, we are brought back into fellowship with God. John is saying the result of this proclamation, proclaiming this word of life, was reconciliation with God. Not some enlightened knowledge but a reconciled relationship grounded in the work of an actual person who, though he was God in the flesh, was also in the flesh. Both. Right? All right. Now let me speak briefly to why this matters today. Because what we'd like to think is we have advanced so far beyond all of these things. But we haven't. We haven't. These issues are still in the church we still have to wrestle with the fact that people still want to create new visions of Christianity. Which means that this foundation is still very important. Okay, So first, let's look at a central person. The people that John was writing to, or the people that John was writing to oppose, the teachers that had come in, they had an issue with Christianity because they wanted Christianity as a system of thought. They wanted it as a philosophy. They wanted some kind of speculative notion that would make them rise above their brokenness, and they wanted it without any necessary connection to the person of Jesus. And we want the same today. Listen, 
all of us kind of trend because we're Western. <laughs> we all kind of trend towards a generalized spirituality. In our country, that's that smorgasbord principle. I'm going to take a little bit of this from here and a little bit of this from over here and a little bit of this from over here. And I'm just going to have my cake and eat it too. The only absolute truth claim that we want to make is that no one can make absolute truth claims. Which, which the funny thing about that is all that really does is allow no one to criticize us. Right? We become the arbiters of everything. There's no authority outside of us. So some of us will take Jesus' morality. Right? Some of us do. We think, yeah, I, I, I want to be good like Jesus. Others of us want to take uh, what we think is his tolerance of others. But what we want to do is we want to take the morality. We want to take the tolerance. We want to leave Jesus behind. Like, it was great. I'm glad he taught us these things, but now I'm, I'm good. Right? But John says, no. No, you, you can't do that. Like, see, the reason that Christianity can say, uh, can make that exclusive claim that it's the only way is that Christianity is the only system that gives you Jesus. And without Jesus, there's nothing. It's the only way that, is not, that, that doesn't think that its, that its morality is better or unique. Did you know that? Like Christi- Christians, I know Christians can sometimes f- fall off the horse on this. But Christianity does not believe somehow that our morality is utterly unique or somehow special more, or that our theology is just more logical than anyone else's. Though, is our morality unique? Yeah, I guess so. Sure. Absolutely. Is, is our theology hold together better? I mean, yeah, I think so. But that's not the point. It's the only system that gives you Jesus to place your faith in. He is the message. He is everything. Without Jesus, Christianity is nothing. Because Christianity does not give you a code to do. It gives you a, tr- a Christ to trust. And if you don't trust the Christ, you're lost. Listen, some of you, if you're not big on Christianity and you're just checking us out, that's awesome. Listen, I know some of you are like, I'm good with what Jesus said, but don't make, like, why do I have to get connected to Jesus? I mean, I do pretty good in your life. You probably do. My guess is you're probably way more moral than me. But if God's not looking for good, he's looking for dependent, then the only way back to him is through Jesus. The only way. No one else gives you a Christ. The great news is that if you trust in the Christ, in Jesus, then reconciliation with God is a gift that is given to you freely, no matter what your life has looked like. Now, I know that might be different than what you've heard in the past, but the central person, the central person of Jesus is comes out of the central witness. This is huge, so stick with me. What Christianity is stubborn about, in fact, the whole Bible is stubborn about this, and it's what John gets at here, is that it is based on events that happened in time. It's not based on some speculative knowledge that someone came up with in a cave. It's based on events that happened in time. Every other world system is really based on a set of timeless truths, right? Think about it. You got the four noble truths of Buddhism, right? They're just noble truths. Anyone could have come up with them. It just happened to be this guy who they ended up calling Buddha at some point. Or you have the, the five pillars or the latest uncovered secret knowledge discovered in some golden tablet in the middle of South America of who's he, what's it? I don't know. Like the, these things come up all the time. But the basic tenet of all of these systems is do these things. Think this way. Be like this. Biblical faith, though, isn't a system of do's. It's a statement of done. 
It's about something that happened in space and time, something that you could see and hear and touch. That is why the central message of Christianity is called gospel, good news, not good advice, good news of something that actually happened. Uh, Theologian Leslie Newbigin calls this public truth, the idea that the earliest Christians proclaimed that what they were declaring is something historically verifiable. Now, I know some of us are really skeptical at that point because much of what we're told about biblical faith, much of, maybe even you've read some of the Bible and it sounds like fantasy to you, right? I mean, it talks about someone rising from the dead. And you and I, all, we know. Dead is dead, right? You don't come back. Here's the thing, though. Ancient people knew that dead people stayed dead, too. That's why in Acts 17, if you've read the book of Acts, in Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens, and he's preaching, he's proclaiming the gospel in Athens, and he gets to the point about the resurrection of the dead, and they laugh him off the hill. They're like, yeah, all right, we're done. Done. Come on, move on. That's that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Ancient people knew dead people don't come back to. We're not that much smarter than they are. Come on. What's important for us to understand is this. If you're considering the claims of Christianity, this is the level of things you need to think through. Frankly, it doesn't matter what Christians think about whatever moral hot-button issue is on the table at the moment. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, who cares? Like If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, who cares what we think about theology or God or whatever? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then I am wasting my time and so are you. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if God didn't become flesh to rescue us, then the rest of it is just plain nuts. But at the same time, if we're going to doubt the gospel accounts, I would simply encourage you to be willing to doubt your doubts with the same kind of doubt. Right? If you want to doubt the gospels, that's fine. Listen, I'm not afraid of that. You can doubt them all you want. Like, doubt them. But doubt your doubts with the same level of doubt. I would simply encourage you to be willing to doubt your doubts because these men and women were willing to die for something that they witnessed because it changed everything. And frankly, I'll lay out the gauntlet. If you're here and you're, doubt, and you, you're like, I don't know what to think about Christianity, uh, I, what I'm pretty sure is that it's all fantasy. If you can come up with a more cohesive reason to explain the historical data that we have, I would love to hear it. Because I'm fairly certain, uh, more than convinced, in fact, the best explanation of it that God became flesh in Jesus, lived for us, died for us, and rose again, and that people went and proclaimed him to the world. Okay? Lastly, this gives way to a central message. The issues that John is facing, again, is the fact that there are people coming in giving alternate visions of Christianity. Visions that are unmoored from Jesus. Unmoored from his gospel and unmoored from the results of that gospel. And the same is true today. Excuse me. I don't do this often, but I feel I need to do this. Um, when we have people under the guise of Christian teaching deciding that for the last 2,000 years Christianity has been wrong, and in fact, uh, they begin teaching things like there's no such thing as hell, that faith in Jesus is not essential to reconciliation with God, that in fact, God really loves everybody and eventually that's going to win in the end. You don't really need Jesus, you just... 
be who you are. That biblical sexual ethics can be jettisoned as outdated or misinterpreted universally for 2,000 years. The gospel, in fact, is about you being rich and healthy. Can I tell you something? We are not dealing with Christianity anymore. It is not Christian. It's a counterfeit. I know that sounds strident, but it's true. The core message of the gospel is, in, is unchangeable because it is rooted not just in events that happened, but in an unchangeable God. That is John's entire point. What he heard and saw and touched and experienced, he proclaimed. Which means you and I do not need any new word from God to make things right with us. We have it here. We don't need anything new from God to bring us to maturity. And quite frankly, you should be skeptical of any new morality that begins with, well, Jesus never really said anything about blank. Because that sounds strikingly similar to, did God really say? And that is a lie that has been spoken since the garden. Listen, because I need to make this clear. There is true biblical Christianity, and there are false ones. Apostolic Christianity, biblical Christianity, which proclaims the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that proclaims the need for both faith and repentance, that says that we are broken in every aspect of our being, but loved in every inch of it, and that our lives will bear witness to the life of Jesus, not just in our words, but also in the shape of those lives, in fact, even in our suffering, that is the faith that we proclaim. Everything else is a poor substitute that just gives false hope. Let me conclude. The fact that John is speaking to this and the fact that it still applies really does speak to how effective that siren song can be. Right? That it actually can draw us so quickly away from what is true, which means that our goal is not to create some new method for avoiding the song, uh, nor to uh, some attempt to negotiate with the song. Maybe we can come to some arrangement, some agreement that's got a, a middle ground. Odysseus had it right. Lash your heart to the mast of the gospel. Keep returning to it, because it is both the introduction to the faith and the capstone of it. Lash yourself to that mast because it is strong enough to hold you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we give you praise because Jesus is not some kind of idea. That the faith is not some kind of speculative knowledge. That it is, in fact, uh, more than that. It, it is something based in what you have done. Not in what we are to do, but in what you have done. Because you have come... Uh, in the, in, the, in the person of Jesus to reconcile us to yourself, to live for us when we couldn't, to die for us when we dare not, to, to rise again for us. And now, Lord, you just call us to trust you, to place our faith in you. So Lord, for those in this room that haven't done that, I pray that you would give faith this morning. And for those of us who have been tempted by that song to run off in different directions, 
listening to the siren song that says, did God really say? I pray that you would give us grace to return again and to lash ourselves to the gospel. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.